You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, uh, is only three verses, perhaps the shortest letter that Jesus shares with any of the seven churches, but perhaps the most profound. And we're gonna talk about the amazing, the glorious, the difficult, and the uh, the necessary reality that is suffering. And uh, for a moment, I wanna talk about that to kind of set this up before we dive in to the idea. The theologian Michael Stipe, the uh, lead singer from REM, he actually said this. He said, everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. I don't know if you remember singing that, when you had that breakup after she left you and you had that song cranked up in the car as you pulled up to the stoplight and the guy sitting next to you in the, in the stoplight looked over as you were holding the wheel and kind of grasping the air and just singing it out and then you looked over and realized that guy was watching you. Did that happen to you? It happened to me. Everybody hurts. Uh, it's true. Life is full of heartache. In my short life, just 25 years of my life, <laughs> why is that always funny? Uh, I've seen a lot of heartache in just my family alone, in my personal family, our, our, ex, our not extended family necessarily, but in our family, in, in my home growing up, my mother was actually sexually and physically and emotionally abused as a child, as a teen. Uh, my little sister was born uh, deformed. She had a cleft palate in her lip. She was blind and deaf. Her heart was on the wrong side. She had extra fingers and toes. They didn't give her uh, a day to live, and she lived for six months, and her name was Grace. Uh, in my own family, Uh, my younger sister had a full scholarship to Ringling and because of some weird uh, uh, kind of hiccup in the paperwork, a signature was missing and she lost her entire scholarship and had to go back to waiting tables and bartending. Uh, My wife, Jen, uh, had struggles with her dad who left her essentially at three years old. Uh, my, uh, My son, Aiden, our son was born premature three weeks early from a placental abruption and uh, Jen was only seconds from hemorrhaging to death. Even uh, my mother-in-law, Penny, has a dear friend that just went into glory uh, and passed from this life to the next. Just in the last five years, uh, we had a hit and run. So if someone hit Jen in our car and, and then took off and ran, uh, we were driving one night home from Disney and we hit uh, basically uh, a patch of water and we spun out on Ellington Bridge on the interstate, crashed our car into the side and, and almost totaled the car. Uh, Just recently, in the last three, four months, we got hit as a family with unbelievable financial surprises and setbacks that have caused us to kind of have to pray and say, Lord, what are you gonna do financially to pay these bills? And so, just in our own life, tragedy and and problems and issues, think of your own life. Think of the tragedy as we come this morning uh, to sit and listen to the word of God. Think of the tragedy in your own life, people that have let you down, uh, situations that that turned out not for good, but it seemed like for the worst. Friends who you thought were friends, they, they mistreated you, stabbed you in the back. Uh, the promotion you thought you were gonna get, uh, it was passed by you and given to someone else. And maybe your car that you thought, this is gonna be a great car, and it's a lemon, and you realize, oh man, I'm on the freeway stranded. What a piece of junk. Uh, your bank account maybe is down to a few dollars, and you literally don't know what I'm gonna eat next. Uh, or maybe your loved one that you're is tree and you thought that's before their time, Lord, what's going on? 
I'm not here this morning to tell you that suffering is trivial or to downplay what you've experienced. No, I am here to tell you that you're among friends, that life is full of suffering, that everybody hurts. And so can we take a deep breath this morning and kind of let out um, like a, a nod in agreement and just let out kind of a deep breath that all of us suffer and suffering is inevitable? Can we just like admit that today? Nod your head with me, like suffering is inevitable. It's gonna happen. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us. Now, um, there is a great concept that someone came up with that said when we experience pain, we tend to do one of two things. We either moralize pain or we minimize pain. I think this is interesting. One writer said this. He said, moralists interpret misfortune as the karmic result of misbehavior. This for that. So if you're moralizing your pain, you would say, oh, you failed to obey God, so he gave your child an illness. Such rule-based economies of punishment and reward may be the default mode of the fallen human heart, but that doesn't make them any less brutal. But he goes on to say, to conclude that suffering people have somehow heaped up trouble for themselves on the cosmic registry and that God is doling out the misery in direct proportion would be more than mistaken. No, it would be cruel. It's important that we don't try to moralize our pain and say, well, this is directly a result of something I did. Uh, on Saturday Night Live, there was a skit called Deep Thoughts, and this is what one of the deep thoughts was. I love this one. It says, if a kid asks where rain comes from, I think a cute thing to tell him is God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is probably because of something you did. <laughs> it's awesome. It's horrible. But see, many times we moralize suffering. Oh, it's something I did. Or on the flip side, the other reaction is we minimize it. We minimize suffering or pain. One person said this, Christians, of course, use spiritual language to minimize suffering constantly, even their own. We feel this need, he says, to exonerate God in the midst of tragedy, even to shove Bible verses in a person's face. It could be just as harmful as saying something actively discouraging, as if God were small enough to be invalidated by our individual suffering. Wow. So we don't wanna moralize suffering. We don't wanna minimize it. What is our response then? What should our reaction be to suffering? That's what we're gonna learn today from Smyrna, aka the suffering church. If you're taking notes, Smyrna is the suffering church. Now, as we mentioned last week, John is speaking to, uh, Jesus is speaking to John the apostle who's been exiled on the island of Patmos. And Jesus has come to reveal himself, to unveil himself, and thus the book is not called Revelations, but Revelation, singular, the singular unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is one singular revelation of the person and work of Jesus over and in his creation. And so Jesus has a message for seven churches in Asia Minor. Someone this morning said, we missed last week. Last week we looked at Ephesus, the church that ultimately had left their first love. They had departed from their relationship with Jesus and they were busy working, but they weren't busy sitting at his feet. And so these churches were literal churches that had pastors and leadership and congregations. Uh, they also are written to all churches so that we can apply this to all churches, but they're also for us today. We can apply this for Shoreline Church for you and for me. And so if you're taking note this morning, we're following this helpful outline for each church. Every church Jesus addresses, we're gonna see these things. We're gonna see a literal city that he's writing to. It actually existed. We're also gonna see a characteristic of Christ 
that he kind of says, this is the one who's writing this. And he refers back to Revelation chapter one. So we get kind of a glimpse of, okay, which attribute of Jesus is gonna make sense for this church, okay? Then we're gonna see a commendation. I think last week we said, everyone give me a thumbs up. Okay, so we give a commendation. You don't have to do it today, but there's a thumbs up. Then there's also a criticism, which is a thumbs down. Uh, we're gonna see today that there is no criticism for the church of Smyrna, which is very insightful. Uh, then he's gonna correct them. Not just give them a thumbs down, but correct them. This is what to do to fix this. And if you do this, if you overcome, then you can receive the crown, right? So let's take a minute and look at verse eight. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Please circle the word Smyrna. This is the city of Smyrna, located about 35 miles north of Ephesus and established by Alexander the Great. Now, of the seven churches we're studying, Smyrna was by far the most beautiful. It was a gorgeous city. I think we have a picture of it. Now, that's a modern-day picture. That tower was not there in the ancient city. Um, that is, let's put that back up for a minute. That, that is actually the uh, modern city of Izmir, Turkey. So Izmir was built over uh, Smyrna. As you can see, very beautiful. Uh, there's actually a temple, we'll go to the next one, a temple built there to Homer, not Simpson, but Homer. Uh, this is an incredible temple, incredibly beautiful. Uh, and if you look at this next uh, picture, uh, you can see some of the architecture that still remains today. A beautiful architecture, beautiful city. What's strange, though, is that the word Smyrna uh, is the Greek word for myrrh, and it means bitter. It means bitter. Myrrh is a small fruit, uh, a little bit larger than a pea, and it's known for a fragrance that it gives off when it's crushed. Remember when we studied the incarnation just at Christmas Eve just recently, uh, one of the three gifts that the multiple magi brought, right, was the gift of myrrh, uh, gold and frankincense. Did anybody have a hard time looking at nativities after Christmas Eve this year? Sorry for doing that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the podcast from Christmas Eve and the magi, hashtag wise men. You'll, you'll understand what we're talking about. Uh, so myrrh is a strange random gift for a child. Uh, gold makes sense for a king. Frankincense makes sense in the idea of the priesthood, but myrrh is very strange. It's what you would use in anointing or embalming a dead body. This is a strange gift, but a very appropriate gift for uh, the suffering servant who would die as a sacrifice for our sins. And so I think it's interesting and significant that Smyrna was where these believers were feeling the pressure and they were feeling that they were gonna be crushed. And yet in the midst of their crushing, their persecution, their suffering, they were giving off an aroma it was very pleasing and a fragrant offering to him. So the city of Smyrna. Now, let's look at the uh, characteristic of Christ. Look at verse eight. Uh, it says, this is Jesus. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Okay? Note with me that Jesus chooses to describe himself as the first and the last. It's a reference to chapter one where he called himself the alpha and the omega. The alpha is the first uh, letter in the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter. You could, maybe in English here in the US, you could hear Jesus saying, I am the A and I am the Z. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. Here he says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Now, a few years ago, some people came to me and they said, hey, um, we see that you like donuts, and so we're gonna help you uh, get in shape. And I said, round is a shape. And they said, no, we wanna help you get into some better shape. And so they actually invited me, they gave me a bike, they gifted me a bike, like a, a road bike with road tires. You can't off-road it, I tried. 
fell. And uh, it's a road bike, very thin tires, and they give you this helmet and these like arm pads and you take all the stuff off the bike so it's, it's weighed down very light. And, uh, and then they gave me an outfit, okay? And I, I don't wanna give you a mental picture, but they gave me basically this little skinny outfit. And you have to wear these shorts that are shorter than what we wore in the 80s, okay? It was very awkward. And so cycling was a, a kind of a little hobby that I had for about, I was about five or six days and um, didn't last too long. But uh, I do cycle here at the gym, uh, which is much easier. And uh, so one of the things that we did when we went out with this Peloton group, this big group of riders, is you would have a strong front rider and the front rider would be out in front bearing all of the wind. And so as he's out front, you can only do that for a certain amount of time. You're bearing all of the, the wind resistance for this whole group. And so then you would kind of trail back to the back and the next guy would take the lead. But the guy in front, he's taking the brunt of the, of the, the pressure and the wind and he's kind of saying, oh, road hazard, watch out for that nail. And he's yelling back, kind of pointing. He's taking the brunt. Then the guy in the back also has kind of a unique position. The guy in the back is yelling out, keep going guys, we're at five miles, keep going. We're at 50 miles, right? When he got to 20 with me, I'm like, I'm done, we're good, I'm going home. And so in a sense, that's kind of what Jesus is. He's the first and he's the last. He's out front bearing that weight and yet he's also behind us encouraging us and strengthening us. Not only is he the first and last, but notice in verse eight that he's the one who was dead and who came back to life. I think that's interesting for encouraging those who were facing suffering and pain and persecution, even martyrdom. To know Jesus died and he came back to life Again, that gives us incredible comfort when we're facing pain in this life. Some of you this morning have loved ones that have died even recently. And you look at that and you go, I'm a little bit afraid of death. I'm not sure what I'm gonna experience. And here's the one who comes and says, I was dead and I've come back to life. What an encouragement for us. Smyrna itself was a Greek colony as far back as 1000 BC. And something interesting happened in 600 BC. It was invaded and destroyed by the Lydians. And for 400 years, it just laid dead as a city, just ruins. Around 200 BC, Lysimachus had it rebuilt and planned as a unified city, uh, built with streets and beautifully paved, and all the architecture you saw is from that rebuild. So it's very interesting. The city of Smyrna itself had died and then had come back to life. And Jesus says, hey, I know that you understand this analogy, and that's who I'm speaking uh, from. So. Jesus' commendation is significant here because there's no criticism. So look at the commendation in verse nine. Jesus says, I know your works, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you're really rich. And number four, I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Note with me, if you're taking note, four things that Jesus says about them. On the screen, their performance. He says, I know your works, their pain, he says, I know your poverty and I know your persecution. I love that. The first, as we leave that up, Jesus knew their works. Same phrase used in Ephesus. The church in Smyrna, like Ephesus, they were working as unto the Lord and Jesus was recognizing their ministry. Some of you this morning are wondering, does the Lord recognize what I'm doing? Does he see what I'm doing? Does he recognize and know my works? I've been serving him for decades and I just don't know if he sees. I don't want recognition from man. Uh, I wanna just do it for him. But does he see, does he care? I love this verse in Hebrews chapter six. I like to send people encouragement cards and just let them know that I'm thinking about them with this verse. If, uh, Hebrews 6.10 says, for God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Someone here today maybe needed that encouragement. But God's not unjust. He sees the work that you're doing. He knows your works. He knows your performance, and he won't overlook it. So secondly, Jesus says, I know, notice your tribulation uh, or affliction. Here's how the Greek word could be translated. Uh, it can be translated, obviously, tribulation or affliction or trouble or anguish or persecution or burdens. You could also add the word pain. I know the pain that you're experiencing. And Jesus says, I know you look afflicted and poor, but I consider you rich. A lot of paradoxes in the Christian life, things that seem to be backwards. Things like, if you wanna save your life, well, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, well, then you'll find it. Uh, it's just interesting that Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Uh, I wonder sometimes, why does it take suffering to remind me that God is sovereign and will work out everything for good? Why does it take suffering? Uh, there's a business leader named Alan Embry, and, and he talks about accompanying his friend and mentor to visit a hospitalized employee. And I think this is a powerful story. The patient was laying there uh, after anguish. There was an operation that took eight hours, and, and he was just in anguish. And he's waiting there, knowing his recovery is gonna be long and uncertain. And so Alex um, said, hey, I know you've got a number of serious operations. Uh, and uh, I know the pain of trying to talk right now. And I, I know that you have questions you're asking. And so he said to him, hey, Alex, there's two verses that I wanna share with you today. And uh, we have the option of having one of these two attitudes. And he said to him, Genesis 42, 36, and Romans 8, 28. And he says, we need the perspective of the second. And so here's what David Jeremiah says, who told the story. He says, the choice is this, to be beat up or to be upbeat. Here's the two verses. You can either, through your trial, say with Jacob, Genesis 42, 36, all these things are against me. Or you can say with Paul in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God. Uh, and I love what um, he goes on to say. He says, the perspective that you choose will color your life completely and thoroughly. Will it be gentle tones of grace and providence or harsh slashes of despair and emptiness? Wow. You know, we use a phrase a lot, and I harp on this. We use this phrase, that was a God thing. Have you ever said that? You're like, oh, it's so cool. Everything worked out. It's such a God thing. It's always with things that are positive. But we never say, like, oh, man, my tire blew out on the freeway. I almost died. It was such a God thing. We never say that. Like, how's it going in school? Oh, my kid dropped out of school. Like, it's a God thing, right? We don't say that typically. But see, the Lord can work all things together for good. And sometimes we buy into this Hollywood idea that everything gets resolved by the end of the TV show. And, and, and you know, it doesn't always work out that way, church. Uh, sometimes the body doesn't heal. And ultimate healing is found in death and, and in, in our resurrected body. Uh, sometimes marriages don't get reconciled because someone doesn't really die to self. Uh, sometimes the house, it doesn't get saved from foreclosure. Uh, sometimes the paycheck is not big enough to hold you this month. And sometimes the enemy uh, that you have may not repent, right? So we need to have an honest view of suffering. And Jesus says, I know your pain. I get the tribulation that you're going through. I understand your poverty. He says, note there that you're actually rich. The word for poverty there is abject poverty, meaning you have nothing at all, no money at all. And that's because of what was taken from you, punishing us. In fact, I would say we have five worldviews on suffering. 
If you're taking note, I just wanna spend a minute on this because I think it's helpful. I think someone here needs to be encouraged by this if you're going through a time of pain. Here's five worldviews on suffering and pain. Number one, this is one worldview that suffering should be denied, okay? Suffering should be denied. Here's what we try to do. We try to escape pain by running from it. So some people run to drugs, to alcohol, to sex, or they try to escape doing something else, work, and they try to check out so the real pain of life isn't something that we go through. Uh, or, or we run to a false doctrine, a gospel that preaches prosperity or temporal blessings and health, but doesn't deal with the reality of persecution, suffering, and death. And there seems to be an idea today, even um, heard pastors teaching along this line, that God's will is that we're never sick. I've heard this. Uh, and it's hogwash, right? That God would want us to never be sick. We never experience pain or, or suffering or evil in our lives. Okay? And the problem with that is that it's inconsistent with Scripture. Uh, Paul talked about uh, the apostle, a thorn in his flesh. And he asked the Lord three times, remove this from me, please. But God said to him in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He didn't say, okay, let me remove it because we never suffer. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Note, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Anybody delight in those times that you're going through? That seems a little Apostle Paulish. That's a little hard for me to live that one out, to rejoice in my suffering. But notice that Paul delighted in it. He didn't want all suffering to be removed from his life. Uh, later, his friend Trophimus was sick, and Paul said, I left him sick in Miletus. Why would Paul do that if everyone gets healed? Uh, why didn't he have enough faith to heal his friend, right? So it's not only inconsistent with Scripture, but um, to say that we're always healed from sickness, that's a mis, uh, misunderstanding of suffering. Uh, God allows suffering to display his glory uh, in ways that success would not allow. Let me repeat that. God allows suffering to display his glory in ways that success wouldn't allow. John Corson said it this way, misery always opens the door for ministry. Can we get an amen to that? <laughs> that was obligatory, amen. I'm not asking for it, Lord. <laughs> if you're going through difficulty, tragedy, sickness, or a hard time, be careful that you don't become introspective and wonder what you've done wrong to deserve it. The question is not who caused the misery, the question is, Will you allow me to use it? Will you allow me to demonstrate my glory through it in order that a blind world might see my reality and be made whole? By the way, that was written by a man who lost both his wife and daughter to a tragic, fatal car accident years apart in the same area of town. The second worldview behind this mindset is that happiness is found as long as there's no pain. Hmm. The second worldview, and we'll move a little faster, is that suffering should be desired. Right, strange fetish with some people and pain. They're just drawn to self-mutilation, right? They like country music. They just wanna punish themselves, right? Just joking, it's good. I've heard there's some good country music out there, maybe, I'm sure. No, I'm kidding. And not just physical pain, but some people chase after problems, right? They're good with their life and then suddenly they sabotage it and create all this drama and free fall into disaster, um, you almost think, are you happier when you're unhappy? What's going on here? A lot of teens today, research shows that they're cutting themselves to try to alleviate the, the mental and spiritual pain by producing physical pain. So the idea with this is that 
that uh, mild suffering is better than deep suffering. Let me suffer and punish myself so I'm not really punished. A third worldview is that suffering is destined, okay? The Jews in Jesus' day believed that. They believed that, hey, if there's an evil in your life, like sickness, it's because of something you did. If you're born with a physical defect, um, it was a direct result of some sin in your life or in your family's life. By the way, that's where Mariah's ministering. The people in Cameroon, uh, in large areas of tribes in Africa, they believe those, those same ideas that, oh, you've got a physical defect, it's because there's a curse on you, there's something you did wrong. Uh, and I love the ministry, they're able to heal those problems and people can socially adjust. And so the idea back in Jesus' day was, hey, place blame directly on those who are experiencing evil. And sometimes we do the same thing today. Like, why God? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Like, I, I, I deserve this. Uh, but see, in God's awesome providence, he had Jesus and his disciples walk by someone who was born blind. And the disciples said, hey, was it him or, or, or his parents that caused him to be born blind? And here's what Jesus said, John chapter nine. He's, it's... Uh, Starting in verse three, Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Wow, so why did this happen? He said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Not a result of direct sin, not his fault, not his parents' fault, but it was ultimately a signpost. It was the work of God being displayed in his suffering. Great testimony and an example through his suffering. Now, we do have to note that some suffering is a consequence of our sin, right? If we do sin, there are consequences, but suffering's not destined just because you may have sinned. Uh, and so that's the idea here. The fourth worldview is that suffering is deserved. And what I mean by that is that instead of submitting your guilt and shame to the Lord, you feel like you deserve it. And so you punish yourself. Uh, some women go from uh, man to man to man and allow these men to abuse them and go from one abusive relationship to another because they think they deserve it. And the idea is I deserve to suffer. Uh, but none of those are a true biblical worldview of suffering. And number five is, and that is that suffering is designed. Suffering is designed. Jesus told his disciples, hey, nobody sinned. This happened so that God's work could be displayed in your life. Like myrrh, the city of Smyrna uh, was gonna be crushed. Uh, they were gonna go through sorrow. And yet in the midst of that crushing, it was gonna release a fragrance. You know, something else interesting about myrrh is they would use it to anoint the priest. Isn't that interesting? The thing that was crushed was actually used to qualify a man for ministry. I think that's interesting. When you and I go through suffering, uh, it, in a sense, allows us to experience what humanity experienced. That's why we just read those verses from Isaiah 53, that Jesus suffered, and therefore, uh, he understands what uh, it means to be human. And so, I think those worldviews are very important. Let's get back to our text. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your, your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And then he says, I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so have your attention real quick. The Jews in Smyrna were particularly against Christianity. Uh, remember at this time, Christianity was like a sect of Judaism. It was a small group out of Judaism. And so the Jews knew these guys are different. And they knew, like, these are guys, way different. But to the Roman Empire, they just looked like a small theological disagreement. They couldn't distinguish the two at the beginning. But through time, they started to note the difference. And so Rome considered Judaism to be an ancient religion. Whereas when Christianity started distinguishing itself from Judaism, um, they started looking with disdain on this new idea, this new concept. Here's why. 
Christians would take the buzzword that you used of Caesar, the phrase. There's a phrase in America right now that was used in the last election, make America great again. And I've seen some people take that phrase and change it, right? And so they've said like, uh, make Bradenton great again, or like, make your marriage great again, or, you know, make PlayStation great again. They've taken that concept and they've changed it a little bit. Uh, the concept that was almost worship was this. They would say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And what the Christians did is they said, huh, everyone knows that phrase. We're gonna change that to Jesus is Lord. So no more Caesar is Lord, now Jesus is Lord. And you would basically go up to someone and that's what the Christians would say to one another. And so doubt, uh, doubtless to say, or doubtful to say, you're not gonna make a lot of friends when you go around saying, hey, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so um, there was a group of Jews in Smyrna that were coming against the believers. And uh, they were actually not for Jehovah. They were what Paul says, they, or uh, Jesus says to them, they were a synagogue of Satan. Now, that doesn't mean they were the first church of Lucifer, okay? Um, dressing up like Jews. I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, you're dealing with someone who seems to be for you, but they're actually being motivated and used by the enemy to come against you. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 uh, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Listen, you're not fighting against your coworkers. You're not fighting against your professors or your in-laws or your clients or that one antagonistic, obnoxious guy in the office. No, uh, the people slandering you on their blog or uh, that email that that guy sent you. That's not what you're really struggling against. No, your struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. My wife and I, we figured this out early on in our marriage. We get in this fight, and she said, I feel like there's two demons like hiding behind us and throwing darts, and then they're ducking, and all we see is each other. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of a good analogy. It's like we're fighting the spiritual battle, not with the person in front of us, but whoever's motivating them ultimately. Now, wives, don't go home and call your husband Satan, okay? Please don't do that. Like, you're just demonic. Please don't do that. But Jesus says, listen, I know the slander you've had to endure from these guys that are pretending to be representing the Jews. They're not. They're actually evil. They're the enemy. He says, I know the struggle. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Don't fear. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison uh, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So Jesus' correction for them is don't fear. You're gonna have 10 days of tribulation, including prison. Now, man, some biblical scholars really love this one. They're like, okay, what are the 10 days? Could the 10 days be literally 10 days? Could they be 10 Caesars that are gonna reign? Maybe they were 10 epochs of church history. We don't know for sure, but Jesus said 10 days, so I'm, maybe it was 10 days, who knows? And so the point of this, though, is that it's temporal. He doesn't say you're gonna experience hardship for the rest of your life, but for 10 days. Your suffering will have an end in sight. It's not some fairy tale Christian-produced movie with bad acting, where everything gets wrapped up at the end and everything's great and I ended up getting a truck out of it. This is awesome. No, that's not the idea. The idea is that it could get worse, even a lot worse. But you know what's encouraging is that it's just for a temporal season. It's gonna come to an end when I'm in eternity and the weight of eternity, the weight of glory is gonna outweigh that little temporal suffering. Remember, each letter was written to a different angel. 
which means messenger. Some people believe that was the bishop or the pastor or the elder who would help oversee the church or it was an angel. But it could have been the pastor. Who is the pastor of Smyrna? Uh, There's an amazing man in church history who was the overseer, the spiritual leader over the church of Smyrna and his name was Polycarp. Just as it sounds, P-O-L-Y-C-A-R-P. Now Tertullian notes that John the Apostle was the one who discipled Polycarp directly. So imagine he's John the Apostle's disciple. He became the pastor of Smyrna and pastored there for six decades. Uh, But in 155 AD, Rome threw Polycarp into prison for refusing to say Caesar is Lord. Uh, Let me read to you the story, this is pretty amazing. They sent men to arrest Polycarp and he, knowing that they arrived, came down from his bedroom upstairs and willfully opened the door and allowed the soldiers into his home, essentially offering them dinner and refreshments. So he's like, come on in, welcome. They're there to arrest him. And then he asks, may I pray for an hour before uh, being let out? And they said, yes. And not only did he pray for an hour, he stood there interceding for the two soldiers and praying for two hours, and they allowed him to pray. By the end of the two hours, they wanted to leave him there. Like, you can stay. You're obviously a very pious, amazing guy. We don't wanna take you to your death. Well, they did. They brought him to the magistrate, and a large crowd of Roman citizens were there to watch his demise. The proconsul said, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say about the Christians, down with the atheists. Well, Polycarp looked grimly instead at the wicked heathen in the stadium and gesturing towards them said, down with the atheists. (laughs) The magistrate got angry and said, renounce Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp's famous answer was this. I think it's on the screen. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so the magistrate said, I have wild beasts here and I will throw you to them. But Polycarp held his ground and basically said, so be it. So the magistrate said to him, okay, if you don't prefer the wild beasts, then I'll consume you with fire, lest you repent. But here's Polycarp's response. He says this, I love this. You threaten that fire which burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you must. And so they built a pile of wood and they went to nail him to hold him fast to the burning pyre. And he said, no, 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 I don't need you to nail me. He said, leave me as I am. He that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And so they, be, they lit the fire. Polycarp begins to pray. And as church history has it, the fire formed an arc around him. It actually went around him. It didn't start consuming him. It's burning up, but it's burning around him, creating this little vacuum where he was standing. And finally, the proconsul was so angry He ordered the soldiers, stab him. And so they stabbed him in the chest with a dagger. And as they removed the dagger, his blood poured out and put the fire out that was consuming him. It's an amazing story, an amazing testimony of suffering for the Lord. And in a time when many were abandoning the gospel, Polycarp and the church of Smyrna were not afraid of the things they were about to suffer, uh, the persecution. One person says this, the faithfulness of Polycarp to the end seems to have characterized this church in Smyrna in its entire testimony and resulted in this church's continuous faithful witness for God after many others of the early churches had long lost their witness. The purifying fires of affliction caused the lamp of testimony to burn all the more brilliantly. See, the Christians at that time had a choice. 
you could get a certificate that said, yeah, I, I worship Caesar. Or you could choose to renounce Caesar and then face persecution. And so some Christians said, listen, just, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to you. Just renounce the Lord and get the certificate and then you'll save your family. And some Christians said, I can't bow to my conscience like that. I'm never gonna do that. I'm gonna stand fast. And so I think it's interesting. If you turn with me real quick, keep uh, Revelation 2. Look over at the very last church at the end of chapter three, the church of Laodicea. Uh, this is gonna be the last church that we study, but it's interesting the difference between the church of Smyrna and the church of Laodicea, completely different. The Laodicean church is gonna be a convicting one for us. Uh, they're all convicting, but Laodicea in particular is very strong. But notice on the screen the difference between these two churches. Smyrna, Jesus said, you're poor, but you're really rich. Whereas Laodicea, Jesus said, you seem rich, but you're actually broke, you're poor. Smyrna would be faithful unto death, but Laodicea had kicked Jesus out of their church. He said, I stand at the door. I'm on the outside knocking. Would you let me in? Uh, Smyrna was in the midst of the refiner's fire, but Jesus counseled Laodicea to buy gold. If you've got money, buy gold from the refiner's fire. Uh, he says to the church in Smyrna, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And yet to Laodicea, he says, hey, get ready for the discipline that you're about to face. Church, where are you at today? Where are we at this morning? Someone rightly says, there is not the church and then the persecuted church. It's just the church. We don't have a distinction today. The church of Jesus Christ is being persecuted. We happen to live in a city and in a town and in a country and in a culture that is antagonistic to Christianity, but still in many ways uh, kind to Christians. But as we close today, I wanna invite the band forward and consider what does it mean uh, to suffer and what does it mean to allow the Lord to use our suffering? So go ahead and close your Bibles. I wanna just spend a minute just encouraging us and exhorting us for a moment. Sometimes our suffering seems like it's surprising. Has that ever happened to you? Go through a trial and it's just like, what happened? This is a surprise. There was a doctor who told his patient, listen, I have bad news and I have worse news. Not I have good news and bad news. I have bad news and I have worse news. And the patient said, all right, let me have that. And the doctor said, well, the bad news is that you only have 24 hours to live. And the patient was shocked, wide-eyed, said, if that's the bad news, then what's the worst news? And the doctor said, I forgot to tell you yesterday. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sometimes we're surprised by our suffering. And it seems to come out of nowhere. And sometimes it seems like, man, the suffering's gonna never end. But listen, we're not to be surprised. Uh, we're to be ready. We're to endure to the end, even if that end includes death. See, Jesus promises a crown. Go back and read it later. Jesus says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt at all by the second death. See, the idea here is, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Uh, because of someone who conquered, we don't have to be afraid of death. And that conqueror's name is Jesus. He's the one who died and who came back to life. This morning, I want for a minute for us to consider Jesus and the suffering that he endured. You see, the idea of, of, of myrrh is that you take this small pea fruit and you crush it and it would give off an aroma. Did you know that's the same idea of the name Gethsemane? The name Gethsemane is the idea of the olive press. They would take an olive and they would crush it and they would use it 
as an oil, something that would be fragrant, something that would be used for anointing. And I think it's interesting that Jesus had to suffer. He had to give his life as a ransom for many, but he did it for you and he did it for me. Jesus is the suffering servant who would be the conquering king. And I wonder this morning if you're suffering, if you're going through a time of trial, a time of hardship. Maybe someone here this morning and these trials have kind of come out of nowhere and you're not sure what to do this morning. You're not sure how to submit this to the Lord. You just need a practical, like, what do I do, Lord? How do I submit this? I want us to stand for a minute this morning. And I'd like you to bow your heads with me for a minute. Let's have some questions for you. Are you this morning gonna let the Lord Jesus work his perfect patience, work his affliction in and through your life? As John Piper says, are you gonna allow the suffering to be wasted on you? Don't waste your suffering. Allow it to be used for his glory. I want it to produce fruit in my life. But I wonder this morning, how are you reacting to the struggle you're going through? Are you trying to get a break from it? I just need a break. I need to get out of this. Listen, Jesus endured the cross and he scorned the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was wrestling in his humanity with the reality of what he's gonna endure. And Jesus in that moment, he said, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass for me, then let it happen, but not as I will, but as, you're, as you would will. This morning, as your heads are bowed, as your eyes are closed, is there someone here that just needs to, to see Jesus? You need to be like Jesus and just say, okay, Father, not as I will. And my will, this trouble would be removed, but I wanna submit this to you. Not my will, but thy will be done. Do you need prayer for that? Would you raise your hand this morning? You're suffering, you just need to submit that trial to the Father and say, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Awesome, there's hands up around the room. Let me read a verse to you to encourage you and then I'll pray for you. Peter, who is an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ said, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he or she does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And later Peter would say this, and this is for you, brother and sister, who've raised your hand. He says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for the cross that Jesus endured the shame. He endured the, the beatings, the spitting, the mocking, the blasphemy. He took the crown of thorns on his brow. He took the nails in his hands and feet, carried his cross, the spear that pierced his side where blood and water flowed. Jesus endured hardship. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. He wept over Jerusalem, over his friends, had compassion on the crowds. He's a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And Jesus, we thank you for what you endured for us and that you're now a lamb that was slain. And one day you're gonna come again as the conquering king, victorious, savior, redeemer, the one who will right all the wrongs. And Lord, we've had some wrongs done to us. We submit them to you 
And we pray that we would have the same attitude that Jesus had. Not my will, but thy will be done. We trust you, Father. We pray that you would make us strong, firm, and steadfast and work this suffering for your good and for our community's good, for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com.